Thank you, Hannah. Good evening, everybody. My name's Craig Vernal. It's my privilege tonight to introduce to us our guest speaker from Christchurch, Murray Robertson. And uh, tonight we're in for a treat. In 1968, a young couple by the name of Murray and Marjorie had just graduated out of Theological College in Edinburgh, and they presented themselves to the Baptists down in Christchurch. No one really knew who this fine fellow and his lovely wife were, and so the Baptist uh, crew at the day decided that they couldn't do anybody any harm by inviting Murray to take up the position of pastor at the Sprayden Baptist Church. There'd actually been talk that maybe Sprayden would close, so therefore we weren't going to lose anything by putting Murray into that position. That's right. It's true, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Well, over time, a phenomenon started happening in that uh, working-class suburb of Sprayden, a little church that really had a bit of a, a death knell upon it, became a place of light and hope. And uh, it became, if you like, a phenomenon, a phenomenon indeed to the New Zealand churches, because this church grew to be the largest Baptist church in the, in not only in the city, but in the country. And its work reaching out into the communities touched literally thousands of people. And last count, five to 6,000 people a week are touched still by the ministries of Sprayden Baptist Church. Murray and Marge re re retired, I was going to say resigned, retired <laughs> uh, after 40 years of ministry in 2008. One of the things that we can look at about this church is say, well, it's a fantastic work and a fantastic ministry. But Murray's leadership skill touched other people's lives as well. And one of the things that Murray was well known for was his, uh, his leadership group that he ran weekly, is it weekly? Fortnightly. Fortnightly, with other, <laughs> other ministers and pastors in the city. And the interesting legacy there is that out of those people who've been spending time with Murray over those years, there now is the largest vineyard church in New Zealand in Christchurch, the largest Presbyterian church in New Zealand is in Christchurch, the largest Anglican church in New Zealand is in Christchurch, and all of these people have been part of Murray's leadership uh, network that he developed there. In recent years, Murray's spread himself even wider, even though there's not much of him around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, into a ministry now what we call the Leadership Development Network. And here Murray has been, been consulting not only Baptist churches, but churches of all the denominations around our country. And so it's with great pleasure tonight that we welcome Murray to be here. We thank you, Marge, for being with us here tonight as well. We know that uh, uh, there's a three-chord strand in this relationship, God, uh, Marjorie, and Murray, and so we're so mindful of that. But uh, let's, as an act of faith and honour, Let's just welcome Murray to our stage tonight. Thank you very much, Craig. Well, it takes some living up to, doesn't it? Uh, you, you've really got something going here in Tauranga, haven't you? I mean, this is the second time I've been at one of these. And um, it's very impressive, you know, something real is happening here. There's a few other places in New Zealand, Dunedin this is happening, Palmerston North, but there's something very special about what's happening here, I think it's wonderful. I just wanted to say to the girl who sang that song, that, that was magnificent before, you know, just before I got up. And um, so thank you very much for the welcome. Can I just say a little word too on behalf of the broken people of Christchurch? Um, Christchurch is a broken city now, um, and the church is a broken church. You know, Christchurch was known really as a city of churches, and uh, I guess there were more historic churches in Christchurch than anywhere else in New Zealand. 
almost, you know, I think all the historic churches of Christchurch now are just lie in piles of rubble, including our iconic cathedral, much-loved cathedral, and the Catholic cathedral is the same. Uh, the, the Anglicans alone have got 24 buildings destroyed. Um, that there, there are dozens of churches that have just been destroyed. It's been a painful, painful experience for the body of Christ. And we have appreciated every outpouring of sympathy that's been from all over New Zealand. It's actually blown us away. Even the people in Auckland, you know, were doing amazing things for <laughs> Christ as their sworn enemies, you know, <laughs> at least on the football field. And um, it, it's blown us away, really. And um, to see all those Aucklanders wearing red and black was really something, you know. So thank you very much. We've really appreciated the support and encouragement from all over the country. But I want to speak about something different tonight. I want to talk about a consumer society. Because if you ask someone, what's the nature of the world we live in? What's the nature of the world in which we have to make the message of Jesus intelligible? The answer is we live in a consumer society. Now do you all know what a consumer society is? I mean, someone has said that a consumer society is where all of us live under pressure to spend money we haven't got, to buy stuff we don't need, to impress people we don't even like. No. But let me tell you a story about a consumer society. That kind of the, the, the thing about a consumer society is that in a consumer society, you can get what you want, when you want it, and how you want it. I'll give you an example. When I was a little boy, I grew up in Wellington, and sometimes my mum would send me down to the grocery shop. Now, some of you won't know what a grocery shop is. Let me explain. I mean, this sounds like prehistoric stuff. Right? <laughs> there used to be little stores on street corners, and, and you could walk to them. And, um, <laughs> and, and my mum, it's when you use your legs. <laughs> and and my, mum, <laughs> my mum would send me to the shop to buy the bread. Now, you know, you're used to going to the supermarket and you're just rosing around. And you went to buy the bread. I mean, there was only there was a white V and a loaf. And you had two choices, take it or leave it. <laughs> <laughs> now, that was a pre-consumer society. Now, in that, in that days, you, you couldn't get just what you wanted. Well, we didn't even know there was anything else. I mean, it was, it was bread, you know, white V and a loaf. You know. Who would want anything else? And so now when you go into a supermarket, I mean, you're confronted with all these different, whatever you want, it's there. Now, I used this as an illustration a while ago. And, um, and a week or so later, Marge and I were down at the supermarket. And we were buying the bread. And I said to her, let's count how many different kinds of bread there actually are. Now, this is just a suburban supermarket, you know. Now, how many do you reckon there were? What do you reckon? Someone want to offer a number? 40. Okay. Any advance on 40? <laughs> there were 126. <laughs> now, if you count the breakfast cereals, you get a similar number. But I told this illustration in church, you see, and on the way out, a bloke said to me, Robertson, he said, you're pathetic. <laughs> You've got nothing better to do with your life than count the number of... <laughs> Now, you see, the problem in a consumer society is because when it comes to consumer goods, we can get what we want, when we want it, and just 
how we want it. When it comes to God, we can view God from that kind of perspective. And so when we think about hope, which we're thinking about tonight, we can think, now, what do I hope to get out of God? And the problem is, this is the world we live in, the consumer society, so we can start thinking about God like that. What's in it for me when I think about God? What, what can I hope to get from God? Now, what about, just what, if God actually looked at it the other way around? And he had a great hope for us. What do you think his hope is for the church of Jesus Christ in Tauranga or anywhere? What, what does actually God hope for from us? Well, if you're, if you're a little bit unsure, it's no wonder because Paul, when he talked about what God's great hope for us was, he said it's a mystery. And so I'd like to read it to you about what he said about it. And it's from Ephesians chapter 3. And from verse 2, where Paul talks about God's great hope for us, great mystery that he said came to him by revelation. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Did you see what it was? You see, God has this amazing hope for his people, the body of Christ, the community of faith, an amazing hope. And so we need to, oh, this is what I want to do tonight, to unpack this thing. What is, what, is the, what is God's great hope for the church of Tauranga or Christ Church or New Zealand, for that matter? What, what is it? Now, Paul says it came to him by revelation. You know when that happened? Here's Paul. And those of you who are not familiar with the story, Paul, the great apostle of Jesus, was, was a deeply religious Jewish person. He hated the Christians when they appeared on the scene. And he's, he's riding on his horse and he's going down the road to Damascus to arrest the Christians and put them in jail. He's breathing hatred. You know, it's really got up his nostril, these followers of Jesus and their teachings that Jesus was the Messiah. And he knew as a good, devout Jew, they couldn't be right. You know, this, this wandering peasant preacher, he couldn't be the Messiah of Israel. And so he was really, really angry. So he's 
going down the road to Damascus. And suddenly there's this blinding light all around him. He falls to the ground and he hears a voice. says to him, Saul, Saul, that was his name. Why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. I mean, that was his worst nightmare came to pass. And then Jesus spoke to him. And, and he tells us this in Acts 26. When Paul was telling the story later on, he said that Jesus said to me, he said, I will rescue you. And this is a slide for this, I think. Here we go in a moment. Here we go. All right, I will rescue you. And that's an impressive screen, isn't it? Goodness <laughs> me. <laughs> Has everyone got bad eyesight here? <laughs> yeah. I will. <laughs> I'm not sure which is most impressive. There's so many people from so many different churches, or the screen. <laughs> yeah. Everyone will want one of these now. You know. I'm gonna keep going. Eh? I will rescue. His Jesus speaking to Paul on the, as he's lying in the in the road to Damascus. He says, "I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me." Did you pick it up from that? Well, later on, when he was writing to the Galatians, Galatians chapter one, he said. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me so I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Uh, and this, this, is what it, this is what he refers to in this chapter. This is the mystery. And here it is, back in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And you think, what's so amazing about that? I'll tell you what's so amazing. In the ancient world, there were two groups of people, and they hated each other. They couldn't get on with each other. And they were Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. I mean, they hated each other's guts. I mean, it was deep, intense hatred. They, each group knew the others were wrong. You know, and... and and, and, and then an amazing thing happened. There was another movement appeared in the ancient world. And they were not just Jews, and they were not just Gentiles. But there were Jews and Gentiles who came together in this group, and no one had ever seen anything like it before. This was amazing. And this was the body of Christ. And in, and in following Jesus, these people who were just filled with hatred and hostility to each other had found reconciliation and love and acceptance. No one had ever seen it before. God had a plan. He was working it out. Now, it goes way back, this amazing plan. This is a great, great saga that unfolds all the way through the Bible. You know, a lot of people read the Bible over and over. You can read the Bible for years and kind of never capture what is this great mega narrative that runs right through the Bible. It's amazing. You can just read the Bible like you're looking for verses to looking for your own blessing and this kind of stuff. And actually never, never capture the fact there is a great marvelous narrative that runs through the Bible all the way back, way back from Genesis. You see, when God called Abraham to, to form this new community of faith, what he said to him, this is in Genesis, here we go, he said that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
Amazing. This is God's purpose, to bless all the peoples on earth. And the great saga of the Bible is the story of the mission of God to reach out to the lost peoples of the world. Sadly, sadly, Abraham's descendants thought the blessing was for them and for their descendants only. And so God sent along the prophets, and the prophets came, and they reminded the people, this is Isaiah 49, where God speaks and he, he says, is it too small a thing? This is about the coming of the Messiah. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You know, when Jesus came, and he went into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, and he, he read the passage, and he preached on that song that was sung. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, open the eyes of the blind, and bring release to the captives, and so on. And when, when he was speaking, everyone sort of nudged each other, and they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Didn't he do well? You know, when any hometown boy gets up or girl and gets up and does their first sermon, everyone thinks it's wonderful. And this is what they thought with Jesus. By the time he finished his sermon, they were wanting to kill him. Now, I've heard some bad sermons in my time, but <laughs> I mean, this was awful. You know why they wanted to kill him? Because when he took this passage about the Spirit of the Lord uh, being upon him to reach out to the poor and the broken and the blind and I mean, the oppressed. Everyone thought, this is wonderful. But you know what he did? He applied it to the Gentiles. And he told the stories from the Old Testament about who, how two of the great prophets of Israel had actually gone to the Gentiles, not to the people of Israel. And they were mad. I mean, they, I mean everyone knew. I mean, God loved his people, didn't he? More than anyone else. We know that. These unclean Gentiles, they don't keep the law. They're not loved by God. How can they be loved by God? You know, we're loved by God. We keep the law of God. What's wrong, with, what's wrong with Jesus? He's wrong. And they try to kill him. And you know, all, this, all the way through Jesus' ministry, there's this undergirding theme about the lost people, the, uh, the Gentiles. He met a Gentile soldier and he said he'd never found such faith as he. And then you know the thing that finally triggered it, humanly speaking, for Jesus was when he went into the temple in Jerusalem the last week in his life and he were the money changers in the temple. Now, you do, do you know what really riled Jesus? He, I mean, he, he was mad. He, he got a whip in his hand. Now, this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know? This is R18 stuff. I mean, he, he, gets, he gets this whip in his hand and he drives the money changers out of the temple. I mean, that's not very, not very kind and considerate. I mean, why was he so mad? Well, for a couple of reasons. One was these guys were, were crooks, money changers. They were doing a money laundering racket, really, and they were ripping off the poor, the very people Jesus came to minister to. But the other reason they were doing this in the court of the Gentiles, and in the, in the Jewish faith, you could only really get into the temple. It was only for deeply religious Jews. But the Gentiles did have a court way out the back here somewhere. And so the people, the rest of the nations of the world, if they wanted to come, they could sort of look at the temple, look on God from afar. And these rogues had taken, set up their money-changing stalls in the, the one place 
with the people from the other nations who were maybe seeking God. The only place they could come. And that's why Jesus was so upset. And this is why he said, uh, and this is Mark 11, he said, as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You know, the, the early followers of Jesus never got it. It's amazing. After all that had happened through Jesus' ministry, you see, his followers were all Jews. And they thought, well, this is for us, isn't it? And it took a revelation to Peter. You know, God had to give him a vision and he went up to, on the roof for a snooze in this house and he had a trance and God showed him that he shouldn't call things unclean and he went to the Gentiles and he preached to them and the Holy Spirit came in great power on this Gentile gathering and all the conservative Jews back in Jerusalem said, oh, God must have granted salvation to the, to the Gentiles too. And then Peter went back to his Jewish friends. And it was a bunch of people, and we don't even know who they, what their names were, who, who did the great breakthrough. And we read about it in Acts chapter 11. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling the, the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And that little comment about some Christian brothers, we don't even know their names, they had the most amazing breakthrough. And the God of Israel was delivered from a cultural straitjacket, and so the peoples of the earth could begin to come to Jesus. And we're here tonight because these unknown Christians went to the city of Antioch, and instead of just sticking with their Jewish friends, they went to the unclean Gentiles, these non-law-keeping Gentiles, and told them the wonderful news about Jesus. You see, God had a great intention for the church. You know, back to Ephesians 3, and I've just about finished this trip through the Bible. His in, Ephesians chapter 3, his intent was, was, that, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. You know what that means? You know who the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are? That's the principalities and powers. That's the powers of darkness. You know what Paul's saying? That the church, because it's this amazing reconciled community of these people who couldn't stand each other, this is going to speak to the demonic powers. And the powers of hell are going to tremble because of the power of this new community. Isn't that amazing? Now the question is, do you think the devil's trembling because of most churches in Tauranga? Yeah. That's the challenge. You see, um, it wasn't just the cultural divisions either. It wasn't just the fact that Jew and Gentile had been reconciled and found this, uh, this new life together and all these intense divisions had been overcome. It was the fact that Galatians chapter 3, and this really is the end, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul says. Now this is every division in the ancient world. You can see God's amazing picture and his amazing hope for us is that the Gentiles and Jews could be brought together. But in the ancient world there were all these divisions. You see there were slaves. Most people in the Roman Empire were slaves. They just didn't have personal rights and there were the Roman citizens and they wouldn't talk to slaves, they wouldn't deal with them. Now slaves and, 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 and Roman citizens 
free and slave came together as followers of Jesus. And then there were men and women. Well, women had no standing in the ancient world at all. They had no legal rights. Their testimonies were not accepted in law courts. They had no uh, rights of, in their own standing. They found their existence because of the, um, either their father or their husband. They related to it, a bit like an Islamic society today in some ways. And, and how, now suddenly women and men were, were, had equal access to the God of Israel. Amazing. And there are even instances in the New Testament of women who were leading some house churches in, the, in, the, in this new community. Astounding. And then there, was, uh, there were racial divisions. I mean, there were black Africans and white Europeans in the early Christian community. Uh, and, and young and old. Uh, amazing. Every known division in the world was overcome. Now, here's this amazing picture that God has. Amazing. You can see why in Paul's understanding of this glorious understanding for the body of Christ, why the powers of darkness would tremble. Imagine if that happened. Imagine if all the divisions that we saw in our society were overcome in the community of faith. See, the problem is, unbelievers look at the church and they say you're no different to anyone else. All the divisions that exist out in the world exist in the church. But imagine if it wasn't like that. Imagine if, I have a friend in Sydney, and he's a pastor of this church in what is arguably the poorest suburb in Sydney. I mean, it's not the kind of place that people, uh, he said only 10% of the population are, are white Australians, and the rest are people from all over the world. It's quite a large church, for, especially for a suburb like the one he lives in. There's about 500 people go to it. The, the amazing thing about his church is there are people in there from 40 different countries and 80 different ethnicities. And he was telling me that recently they had the member of parliament turn up. The church was a woman who came along to a service. They were having a special service. And all the kids from the Sunday school got up on the stage and they sang. And this, this politician sat in the front row with the pastor, expressed utter amazement. She said to him, have you gotten them all together for this special occasion? He said, no, this is, these are our Sunday school kids. She said, how have you done that? She said, you know, the government in this country are trying as much as we can to make multiculturalism work, and it can't work. And how come you've done it? What a powerful testimony. But you see, it's not only just the testimony to the world, it's the testimony to the powers of darkness too. But sadly, it's not the norm. Craig was saying, it's been my privilege the last couple of years to go kind of all around New Zealand and talk to all manner of groups, but you know, you know what I find? The church in New Zealand, we've played it safe. And overwhelmingly we choose to go to churches with people just like us. And so we have this happening racially, we have it happening age-wise, age we now have youth churches and old people's churches, and so there's no, some places, no mixing of generations, there are often no ethnic mixing, uh, but far beyond any of this, you know there's a deep wound in the psyche of the New Zealand church and most Christians don't even know it's there. You know what it is? You see, the deep wound is there because of the way the gospel came to New Zealand and the wonderful response there was among the Maori when the gospel first came to New Zealand. And most New Zealand Christians don't know this wonderful story 
In three years' time, it's going to be the 200th anniversary of the coming of the gospel to New Zealand. And I hope in these three years we can learn up about this amazing story because what happened, everyone knows the story of how Samuel Marsden came in 1814 and preached the gospel on Christmas Day. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy and so on. And so several families stayed behind and introduced farming and so on. What most people don't know is this real story started nine years after that when a couple came out from England with the CMS, the Church Missionary Society, Henry and Mary Ann Williams, and they lived in, um, they set up in Paihia. They set up their base in Paihia. And over the next few years, they were joined with others, by others, other missionaries too. And for the first 10 years, it was really hard going. And then the response came. During that time, Henry Williams had this dream of a church here in New Zealand. It would be led by Maori. It would be Maori language. They translated the Bible into Maori. And then the first converts started coming. And when they started coming, a trickle turned into a flood. And uh, over the next decade, there were thousands and thousands of Maori who responded to the gospel. It is an amazing story. And the gospel was by and large taken around New Zealand, not by the missionaries, but by Maori evangelists who were converted up in the Bay of Islands. And it took One of the most exciting stories is how the gospel came to my part of the world, to Christchurch. And it was, it was brought by Tamahana, who was the son of Te Raupraha. Now, the generation previously, Te Raupraha had come down to the South Island and he had slaughtered Naitahu. And around Christchurch, there are the sites of where the slaughters took place. His son came. His son had been converted uh, through the ministry of Octavius Hadfield in, in Otaki. And he came south seeking reconciliation with these tribes who his father had slaughtered. And some wonderful stories. At Kaiapoi, just out of Christchurch, he arrived and, and gathered the Naitahu people together, asked forgiveness for what his father had done, and preached the gospel. And people responded in huge numbers. There were parts of New Zealand when the missionaries finally got there, they found believing communities of, in some cases, thousands of Maori people. This, this is an amazing story. And it's not really known very well by New Zealand Christians. And it all went wrong. It all went terribly wrong. And you know how it went wrong? We in the church, we have an amazing ability to shoot ourselves in the foot. It's because we haven't grasped God's amazing picture, God's great hope for the church. And we've thought it's just to have churches just for people like us. And what actually happened was the Church of England sent out a, a bishop uh, who was a very learned man and who felt the key, uh, like Samuel Marsden had thought before him, the key was for, to have the, uh, the savages educated. And when they were educated, they could, you know, they could be converted and so forth and wanted a really educated church, and a clergy in the church. And so he laid down several prescriptions. One was that this new church would have just one language and it would be English. Second thing was that we'd have an educated clergy and they needed to be fluent like the English clergy in Greek and Latin. Now you know how many Maori there were who were fluent in Greek and Latin, let alone fluent in English. There was no room for Maori to become leaders in their own church. That was the first terrible tragedy. Second tragedy 
was all us white uh, settlers arrived in huge numbers. And while, when the missionaries saw they were coming, they appealed to the British government back in England. And they said, you've got to annex New Zealand because for the sake of the protection of the Maori. Do you know that in the foreign office in England at that stage, the majority of the staff, it wasn't a huge thing, the majority of the staff were evangelicals who were largely the children of William Wilberforce and William Penn and these people uh, who had fought for the abolition of slavery. And their children had gone into the foreign office so they could spread the influence of the Christian gospel. And back there, these people said, we want to do something different. Because in Australia, they'd seen the terrible results of colonization that the Aboriginal people were shot. And they said, we've got to do something different. And they drew up the draft of a treaty. And the treaty is, when it was presented in New Zealand to the Maori people, the missionaries presented to them, it was largely accepted by now. There were tens of thousands of Maori who were Christians, and they saw it as like a biblical covenant document. And that's why they treasure it so much. And they signed it. Because the missionaries convinced them to do it. And at the same time, the New Zealand company had arrived and was starting the settlement expansion. And ground and land, Maori land, was just being stolen. And the missionaries sided with the Maori. And that is why there has been such hostility in New Zealand to the church. Pretty much from the start. Because the missionaries sided with the Maori against the settlers. So the settlers were opposed to this missionary community. There's a deep, deep wound in the psyche of the New Zealand church. And some of the things that happened, I mean, the Maori up in, in, uh, up in Northland, they, they set up a fort at um, Ruapekapeka. And uh, it was an intentional thing they put on the top of a hill so that um, when, the, um, when the British troops arrived, they had to drag their cannons up the hill. And the Maori had dug tren trenches around. The British had never seen trench warfare before. And, um, but the tragedy was, it was Sunday morning. And the Maori, because they were Christians, they'd gathered for a worship service. And at that point, the British troops arrived with their cannon and opened fire in the middle of the worship service. You need to know these stories. And why there's such pain in the Maori community towards the Christian church. You see, the problem is these British people who'd arrived, they professed to be Christians. And it left the Maori just so bewildered. How are these people who are Christians doing this to us? And so what happened? You know what happened? The Maori walked away from the church in huge numbers and by and large have never come back. And that is the deep, deep wound in the psyche of the New Zealand church, and most of us don't even know it's there. Yesterday was Parry Harker Day. It was Guy Fox Day as well, I know. It was a much more significant day that happened because Parry Harker was a wonderful Christian community down in Taranaki, and led by a man named Tefiti, who was a, an outstanding Christian leader. And when the, the troops arrived, when the, the settlers arrived and, and started taking over the land, the People protested, so the British sent in the troops. When the troops arrived, the people of the community came out with tea and scones to give to the soldiers. They arrested Tefiti and took him down to Port Chalmers, locked him in a cave. 
Uh, he was a fine, outstanding Christian leader. And that's the pain of the church in New Zealand. I don't know how does God look on this. I only know there's this deep pain in the psyche of the, psyche of the church of New Zealand. And you see, the last few decades, all sorts of racial groups have arrived in New Zealand. It's not quite so obvious here in, in Tauranga, but in the bigger cities, I mean, I've been in Christchurch before the earthquake some, some afternoons and you think you're in Hong Kong or something, there's all these Asian people everywhere. But you know what's happened? Many of the Christians who come here, do you know what's happened? By and large, we've all settled into our own groups where we feel most comfortable. And so the unbelieving world looks at us and they say we're no different to anyone else. And there are Christian people who have deeply racist kind of views, some people who are different. And many of these people who are coming from other places are actually believers in Jesus or they're becoming believers while they're here. And um, how does this speak to an unbelieving world? You know, God's great hope for us, I think, the church in New Zealand is sadly unfulfilled. I think in the heart of God, he longs for something different. What if, what if all these divisions in our society could find healing and we could be big enough in our hearts and minds to see that we can belong together as followers of Jesus? What if all the divisions in the world, you, there was some place in society people could actually come to and say, hey man, this place is different to everywhere else. What is it about this? What Paul is saying here, the powers of darkness would tremble. I don't think the devil worries too much when we just retreat into our own enclaves and we just gather around us, people who are just like ourselves. We all feel comfortable. You know, I, over, over the church at Spraden, you know, was, got on the tourist route after a while. You know, when you get a bit of visibility, People always, other Christians turn up and they come and they say, I'm looking for a ch church to go to, you know. And I, I, after a while I started asking people, what are you actually looking for? And uh, I found after a while, uh, there were two answers. One is, I'm looking for a church uh, that'll meet my needs. That was one one. The other one was, I'm looking for a church where I'll feel comfortable. <laughs> one bloke said that to me one day and I just stood looking at him. And after a while, he started moving from one foot to the other. And he said, that wasn't the right answer, was it? <laughs> <laughs> what, if, what if it was different? You know, can we, do you think we can grasp this great opportunity before us? Sadly, I'm not sure we can. I would like to think, this is a celebration of hope. I would like to think I'd bound on the stage like the joker jumping around, like a flea in a fit over here leading, leading the singing. <laughs> You know, I'd like to think I could do that too in the message. You know, but I guess I'd have to say my heart's heavy. Because, you know, the last couple of years, you know what I've found as I've gone around all over New Zealand, in every denomination, it's exactly the same. You know what I've found? Even though, by and large, we've segregated ourselves out into communities of faith where we feel comfortable, you know what is, you know what is happening? People just fall out with each other all the time. All the time. Wherever you go, from North Cape to the Bluff, you hear, wherever you go, you hear these stories. Have you heard about this church? Oh, there's been a coup, you know, and they've got rid of the pastor. And oh, Everywhere you go. And you know, the churches of Jesus Christ is filled with control freaks. 
power-hungry control freaks. Some of them are pastors. Some of them are elders. Some of them are ministry leaders. Some of them are people in church meetings. You can find them everywhere. It's an endemic. What about, what about if we felt the calling of Jesus to be loving embodiment of the gospel to each other? What if we grasp this amazing picture that God has got? That the church is to be a picture that is different to the world. That all these people with all their differences, they can all be redeemed by Jesus and find an amazing unity which is, not, which is an otherworldly unity. And it will speak so powerfully. You see, Jesus only gave us one command. This is in John 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you, you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What's wrong with this? Why can't we do that? What's so difficult to understand? Love one another. Which part of that really don't we understand? And why do we do this to ourselves? Why is it that Everywhere, I, I find everywhere you go in New Zealand, there are churches and pastors sit down with me and they tell me these horror stories about power-hungry people in the church of Rose. I heard one today. I hear them all the time. It's awful. So God has so much of a bigger purpose for us that we could lift our minds, get, get over your obsessions that, you know, they've got to sing the song you like and they didn't sing it last week and... Don't sing it, they're not coming back again, you know. It's going to say. And if we have that visiting speaker, we have one more time, I'm not coming back, you know. It's the most mournful message I've ever heard. I you're agreeing you never want me again. <laughs> I got the message. Right? One more story to add to my friend. Eh? <laughs> I spoke in Tauranga and there was this crowd shouting at me. I feel kind of stirred about this. I just think God has got so much of a bigger picture for us. If only we could grasp the bigness, like Paul grasped it. You know, this was a great mystery, he said. You know, the people of Israel never got it. This was the mystery. Hidden, he says, for centuries. And now, to God's apostles and prophets, He's revealed this amazing, amazing thing that the Jews and the Gentiles and the slaves and the free and the men and the women and the young and the old and the black and the white can find togetherness in this reconciling community of hope. Of hope. Then, then, then we will be a community of hope then the world will look at us and they say, look at those followers of Jesus. They are so different. I don't know how it is. They just get on with people who are different to themselves. And then we can tell them the wonderful discovery. You know how it happens? It's because Jesus loves us. And he loves us all. And he's brought us together. And it means there are people that I just don't like. But you know, Jesus has touched my heart towards these people. And I think they're weird, really. But, you know, Jesus has done this amazing thing in my heart and now I can embrace them as my brother or my sister because I know they're loved by Jesus. Now they can be loved by me too. Isn't that amazing? What if, what if the church in New Zealand, if we could grasp this and how different 
how different our world might be. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads together in prayer and reflect on this. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful vision that Paul had. It, it obviously grasped his mind, his heart. Eventually he died for it because the Jewish bigots couldn't handle the fact he could go to the Gentiles and love them. And, oh God, we just confess our shortcomings that so often we just retreat into little groups of like-minded people and we, even we fall out even with them. It's a tragedy, Lord. And the world looks at us and laughs. And our Maori brothers and sisters look at us and they weep. And forgive us, Lord, for what's happened in this country. Give us a fresh understanding of, of the pain that has been in this country and how we can be instruments of reconciling and healing love because we ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.